Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 1. So hopefully you are there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles throughout the room. There's a few that are kind of scattered about. Feel free to grab one of those. You can have that. You can take it with you. Um, turn on to, as many of you perhaps are engaging the apps, various apps that are available to read God's Word. Man, we have more copies of the Bible than we know what to do with. What a gift. So um, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, as we consider the Christmas season, there are a lot of questions that we are presented with, right? Really serious questions. Questions like, how early is too early to start listening to Christmas music? Which, if you're anything like me, it's like, okay, July rolls around and I'm ready for, um, I'm ready for Hark the Herald, right? I'm ready to start, to start singing. That's kind of the way that I work. Um, when does the tree go up? Or maybe you're one of these people, you're wrestling with the question as to when do the outside lights go on? I ran into a, a friend um, at Target as I was picking up my 50th pack of of Christmas lights to hang outside our house. It's pretty amazing. You guys come on by and check it out. Um, and she told me that, that they had had all their lights up for some time, but they always wait until the day after Thanksgiving to turn them on, right? The lights are up. The neighbors can drive by and they can see them, right? We've got snowmen on the ground and like there's baby Jesus in the manger, but we're not lighting that stuff up until after Thanksgiving. That's kind of the, it's kind of the mark, right? We've all got to kind of wrestle with, with questions like this. Does it say too loudly to those around us that we have given up if we put all of our gifts in bags as opposed to wrapping them? Of course, it says loudly that we've given up. But the question is, does it say too loudly that we've given up? And finally, uh, we, we poll the room, a Christmas story or a Christmas vacation. Where do we kind of fall on this? What is the better Christmas movie? These are serious questions that we are considering, that we are working through and processing around during this particular season. But in all seriousness, Christmas answers for us a series of most important questions. Questions like, is God with us? Or has he left us unto ourselves? We would likely all be willing to concede the following point. That life is oftentimes difficult. Life is oftentimes filled with seasons of sorrow. Yet, if we are of the position, as I would encourage us to be, that God is with us in hardship, then we know that we are able to move forward confident that we can face anything. Christmas is a celebration of the gospel. Be not confused. A gospel that says in the deepest depths of despair, our God is with us. A gospel that says in our sorrow, God is with us. A gospel that says when we find ourselves at the end of our rope or wandering in the valley that God is with us. A gospel that says 
when we mess up. When we, when we run from God. When we're selfish and, and self-centered. When we give ourselves to silly passions that fail us time after time after time. The gospel says this, that God is still with us. The gospel that says in seasons of joy, God is with us. In our obedience, God is with us. Why? Well, because our God is faithful. He's faithful to save us from our sins through Christ. He is faithful to sustain us and sanctify us. He will lead us and he will guide us keeping us for himself and strengthening us to engage in his work in the world to glorify his name as he calls more messed up people to join other messed up people plucked from every mountaintop and seacoast on this globe. Sinners called by grace into his family, sons and daughters of a king who rules in perfect justice and perfect Compassion. This is the first question that we're going to explore. We're going to continue to to hammer home this point because I have a feeling that we are in need of this point being hammered home. Number two, while we live in a world filled with brokenness, the question that we must ask ourselves is this, where are we to look for hope? When everyone and everything seems to fail us, Where do we look? To whom do we go? To what or to whom do we cling to for joy? This morning, we look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25 to inform the way in which we answer each of these questions. Because here's the deal. (coughs) Excuse me. We could, we could open up the room for a, a discussion at this point, round table, quasi round table as we are in rows. And we could have a conversation around like, what is it that informs our opinion that God is indeed with us? What is it that informs our answer to the question, whom are we to go or to what are we to go and cling to for hope and joy in a very chaotic and very broken world? But what we want to do, our conviction is let us be a people of the book. Right, let us be a people of the word. Let us be a people who, whose opinions, whose feelings, aspirations, and expectations are informed not by preference, but are informed by what God has to say to his people. First, is God with us or has he left us to himself? What do, to ourselves, what does the word have to say about this? And second, in a world filled with brokenness, where do we look for hope? And to whom are we to cling for joy? Let's look again at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. First, is God with us or has he left us to ourselves? The answer is quite simple. God is most certainly with us. Consider the Christmas narrative. Consider the story of of Christmas. 
If you're here this morning and, and you are unfamiliar with the Christian faith, but you are familiar enough with the Christian season to know that it revolves around the incarnation of Jesus, God's entrance into the world, the person of a baby, then you would clearly say that this is a most unorthodox sequence of events, that which God seeks to accomplish by way of his, his work that we remember through the advent of Christ. If you're a Christian following after Jesus, loving the Lord and seeking to to diligently live out his instruction for your life, relying on the spirit for strength, you too would likely say that this is a most unorthodox means by which God accomplishes his plan and purpose, that being the incarnation. Man, the will of the father carried out by the spirit as he comes upon Mary, leading to the conception of the eternal word of God, the son who takes on flesh in order to dwell with his people so that he might fulfill the law of God and give himself as the only sufficient sacrifice to save and secure a people for himself. Indeed, most unorthodox. We read in verse 20, though, that this is the exact instruction that is delivered to Joseph in order to explain that which has has taken place within his future bride. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Right, don't, don't concern yourself with, with, with cultural opinion or expectation or what the world might have to say if this is the way in which things play themselves out. Don't fear. Don't worry. Be not concerned. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. <coughs> For she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Matthew 1, we are provided a detailed account of the birth of the Christ. Right, the, the circumstances that surround him, in addition to a bit of foreshadowing to his future work. What an incredibly unique birth announcement. Have you ever received a birth announcement before? Typically, they come after the birth of a child, right? You get a postcard in the mail, and there's a baby, right, on the card, and it's celebrate with us. Like, a a baby has been born. Like, we have a new little one in our family. If you haven't gotten one of those cards, hang around for a little while. Like, you will. This is a, an incredibly unique birth announcement that we see here in Matthew chapter 1. The announcement of the coming of this, of this son. A son who would, Isaiah 9, appear to the oppressed. A son who would appear to the captive. To the blind, to the broken, and to the hurting. A son who would be born to a teenage girl from the country. A son born among 
most unique circumstances. A son who would be born in order to identify with humanity so that his sacrifice might indeed prove sufficient. As he, as he subjects himself to the perfect and just punishment of the father toward sin. A son born to die. I've heard it said before that we wake up each day imagining that whatever it is before us is bigger than our God. First, this is tragic. Second, this is more often than not accurate. Waking up, considering meetings that are scheduled, conversations that are in need of of having, troubles to confront, hardships that remain in our life year after year after year. No matter what we do, we can't seem to find resolution. Anxieties, brokenness, hopelessness, illness, many manifestations. We could go on and on and on over this list of things that we wake up each day. And if we're honest within our heart of hearts, we say, this is bigger than God is. Many in manifestation, but joined by a common bond. This feeling that these things master us and that they dictate our existence. Here's what Matthew chapter one says. Here's what Christmas says. Christmas says that this is a, that this is a farce, okay? That this is, a, that this is a, a lie, that it is inaccurate. Christmas says this. Christmas says that God is faithful. Christmas says that, that God is faithful, that he's faithful to his word, that he is faithful to his plan, that he is faithful to his people. That he fulfills what had been spoken by the prophet, verse 22, referencing Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Rest assured. We asked the question in the beginning, is God with us or does he leave us unto ourselves? The very name of Christ clarifies this point for us. God leans into, he enters into the concern that you and I so often experience and wrestle with in this life. Are we left unto ourselves? As he announces the coming of the Messiah, the Christ child, who would save his people from their sins. God is with us. Amen. Man, God is with us. God is, is with his people. He is drawing near to his creation in the person of Jesus. Think of it this way. God moves into the neighborhood. Right? He, he moves into the neighborhood, bringing with him a message of repentance and forgiveness. God moves in and he shines light on the desires of the father to secure a people as an eternal possession, purchasing them. 
purchasing us through the sacrifice of Christ. Christ who is with his people. Christ who is for his people. Understand the distinction there. Understand what we are saying in both of those points, that Christ is with us and Christ is for us, that God is in Christ Jesus desiring that which is was ultimately good for you and I. A good defined not by the world. Now, this is what so oftentimes draws us into a difficult position. Or we, we confuse this, this, this understanding of, of good. Or we look to the world to identify things that the world is incapable of identifying. We look to the world to divine things that the world is incapable of defining, given that it is broken, given that it is existing in a rebellious state. We look to culture to define what is good. We look to media to define for us what is good. When in actuality, we, the people of God, ought to be going into the world and into the culture Speaking, displaying the realities of God's definition of that which is good. Reconciliation with the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. Tabidi Anawele says it like this, right? That the call to repentance is a call to one's ultimate good. That our being confronted with our sin is in actuality good. Everything in our flesh would fight against that. Everything in our flesh would rebel against that. Everything within culture would reject this concept. As the people of God, we have been brought into this deeper understanding and comprehension of the need for restoration here in creation. Restoration in creation, restoration in our relationships, restoration internally. We are each individually in need of internal restoration. Restoration that is understood and realized our good as we look to and trust in Jesus, as we value and and worship Jesus. May Christ is with his people. Christ is for his people. He has come to rescue the rebellious. This is the message of the Christmas season. The incarnation screams this out upon the world. God has entered into the world to save it. We asked the question, is God, is God with us? That's the question in the beginning, isn't it? And as I was working through this this past week, I just could not help but to consider perhaps we're asking the wrong question. Right? Perhaps we're asking the wrong question or at least a question that fails to go far enough. It takes us to a certain point, but it doesn't take us far enough. Of course, God is with us. Again, we see this through the coming of Jesus. We feel and observe this through the spirit who lives in the people of God. But do we understand that our infinite, that our eternal, unchangeable God fights for his people? Yes, he's with us. Yes, he's for us. But if we, if we fail to take that next step, we are, we are missing this big part of what God is accomplishing 
through the incarnation. Through the life of Christ and his substitutionary death in our place, his death for us, we're missing a piece. Let's consider for a moment what this means. God fights for his people. Charles Spurgeon preached on Moses saying, stand firm, be still, and let God fight for you from Exodus 14 verses 13 and 14. He said this, when you try to to add to God's salvation, you subtract. If you try to merit God's salvation, you haven't believed in God at all. You are trusting yourself, even if you tried to do only a little bit. At one point, Spurgeon says this. He says, I dare say you will think it a very easy thing to stand still. To just stand there. Is there anything easier to do than simply stand there? This is the point that he's making. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. It comes not natural, but it requires requires teaching. It requires years of faithful obedience in the same direction. He continues on. I find that, that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, right? How to march left, right, left, right, left, right? That's how it goes. I'm unfamiliar with the marching, like all kind of thing, but I think that's the way that it happens. He says, in fact, this is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostles seem to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand fast. And having done all, stand still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. Tim Keller adds the following. If you're a Christian, you've already crossed over. God has dealt with sin and death, and all of your other problems are merely flea bites in comparison. Consider what he says there. Think about the biggest problem that you perceive to be facing, that you perceive before you in this life, in this season. What is the biggest problem, if you were to make a note of it in your phone or on a piece of paper, surely it captivates your mind. This is not difficult. No one of us have to sit down and think very long or very hard about what our biggest problem is. Well, my relationships are a train wreck. My job is a mess. Like I hate it. My boss hates me and I'm pretty sure I hate them. Everything seems to be falling apart. I don't know where to look or to whom to go. We identify these problems. And and Keller says here, man, that these are but flea bites in comparison to the problem that has been met through the person and work of Jesus. That being our separation from the father. They are annoyances. They are minor annoyances. That's hard to grasp in the moment. As many of you guys know, I was a, uh, I was a student for, for six wonderful years at this, this wonderful academic institution here at West Georgia. And, and there was a season um, which we lived just this way uh, at some off-campus apartments. <clears throat> and uh, we thought that it was a good idea to rescue some, 
some kittens from Walmart and to bring them into our apartment. I'm just going to bring these cats in, right? Four guys, like no understanding of like how to care for these beasts, <laughs> right? Like, like what you are to do with a cat, like how you have to treat them for like insects and things. And we just assumed like you bring them inside. As long as you don't let them outside, what are they going to catch? Fleas found them. And then they took over our apartment. It's even hard to laugh about now. That's how bad it was. You think, oh, I can laugh about this later. It was so awful that like, I mean, you would literally walk into the apartment. This is the picture I'm painting for you guys. You walk into the apartment and like there was some tile. Fleas, they didn't enjoy the tile, okay? Uh, and so, so you had like a few moments to like catch your breath before you like ran across the carpet into your room, hoping as though they were just like camped out waiting, right? Just looking up from the fibers, imagining what it's going to look like to feast on your flesh. Awful. <laughs> At the moment, man, that was the, that was the biggest thing. Keller said, man, you've already crossed over. The gospel says that we have already crossed over, that God has dealt with our sin and all of these other problems are but flea bites in comparison. That's how you deal with your flea bites. Not by looking at them as massive problems. Instead, look at what God has already done for you. We can't talk about God being with us and talk about God being for us and talk about God fighting for us without reflecting on the work of Christ at the cross to redeem us from our sin. As it is the the perfect picture. And Christians in this room, understand this, that Christ comes to save us from our sin. This is the announcement. This is the proclamation to Joseph as he, as he considers, I mean, what is the next step? As it seems as though he has already decided. He comes to to save us from our sins and and he comes to save us from ourselves. Christ who fights for our souls. He secures us in himself and he stations us as instruments, as tools by which he accomplishes his work in the world. If we're not getting this yet, allow me to present this but one more time. God is with us. God fights for us. This is the context of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy. He secures our hope and our joy as he makes peace through the blood of Jesus. Something to be grasped. Peace from God to you and I. Peace for you and I to God. And finally, from you and I to another and to others. God is with us. God fights for us. 
And finally, God lives in us. God lives in us. And as a result, we give ourselves entirely to his work of living, hear this, incarnational missional lives. The incarnation informs the way in which we live our lives. If you're sitting here and you're going, okay, what does it look like for me to, in light of the incarnation and all that it says about who God is and the way that he rescues and his will to redeem, what do I do as I go out into the world? Man, we consider the incarnation and we allow it to shape the way in which we live our very lives. The way in which you live and exist as an employee, as a mother and a father, as a wife and a husband, as a neighbor, as a church member is informed by the incarnation. The way that you order your coffee, the way that you eat your waffle, it's all informed by the incarnation. We live now indwelt by the spirit of God as an incarnational missional people. We sow gospel seeds of hope and peace in our community and in our world because hear this, he has sown gospel seeds of hope and peace in our hearts. We go into the world and we sow gospel seeds of hope and peace. Because God has displayed his great kindness to us in sowing seeds of hope and peace in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him. In resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. God is with us. God fights for us. He he dwells in us. He strengthens us by his spirit to live the incarnational missional life. Think right now, what does it look like for the incarnation to inform the way in which you do whatever you're going to do next? Whatever you're going to do as you leave this place, how does the incarnation inform that? Second question, in a world filled with brokenness, where do we look for hope? And who are we to cling to for joy? This season, the Christmas season, the Advent season, perhaps unlike any other, points us towards the answer. The answer is, is Christ. But the answer is, is Jesus. The only hope for broken people is found in him. Joy in Christ. J.I. Packer said it like this, and I quote, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Don't sugarcoat your condition, (laughs) okay? Let us not sugarcoat the condition of our lives. Let us not sugarcoat the condition of our hearts. Let us not sugarcoat the condition of our world. If we do, we will be vastly and supremely ill-prepared to engage it with the gospel. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 
years later, he might hang on a cross. Without Christ, hope and joy elude us. If you're here this morning confessing in your heart absence of hope, if you're here this morning living a a life void of substantial joy, understand this, understand this, that it is very likely because you do not know Jesus or have wandered away from your first love. And I tell you this because I love you. I tell you this because I care for you. If you're tired of of broken promises, right? if you're tired of false hopes presented to you in this world, look to and call out to Jesus. Confess your sin. Confess your, your reluctance and your skepticism, knowing that God is faithful to forgive you in Christ. Look to Jesus. Take hold of Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus, confident that he has at the cross given himself for you. See this morning your good shepherd. See your good shepherd, your rock and your refuge, your comforter and your savior and run to him. Here's what this looks like. This morning, I, uh, I got up a little bit early to, <clears throat> to finish up some work to read and to, and to pray as is typical on like a Sunday morning. This is what the Sunday morning rhythm looks like at our house. Over on Cedar Street, this is what we're doing on Sunday morning, okay? I get up and I, I get ready and then I sit down at the table or I sit on the couch or I sit in a chair and I just read through, I read through my sermon and I read through um, our text for the morning and I spend time praying. This morning I was, I was doing this and I hear um, from, from Judah's room, um, like little like like noises, right? Like kind of like a baby bear awakening, right? From like hibernation is kind of what sounds like it is coming out of Judah's room in the morning. Ah, let me just like, I don't need to reenact it for you. I would fail to do it justice. Come have a cup of coffee more morning and you can see it. And so I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, I hear him. He's, this is actually, he's stirring, right? Like, that's kind of like, he's awake. Like, everybody get ready, get in your places, right? Like, that's kind of like what it looks like. Those of you with children know and appreciate that. Those of you without, well, one day, okay? Um, so, so I'm sitting there and I hear him and I'm just kind of waiting, like really quiet. And I hear the doorknob, like, uh, into the dining room begin to just kind of like rattle as he's trying to open it. Like never first time. We're not strong enough to first time get it yet. It's kind of like, like just like we're working it. Like he's one step away from kicking it in. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he opens it and then he, it kind of opens real slow and he sticks his head out. You know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm describing, this is my house. It's your house. It's our house. The people of God gathering together. Right. And so, um, so he sticks his head around and I'm like looking over and I see him and then he goes, this is what he does. This is what he does every Sunday without fail as though he's like surprised. And I guess in a way he is because he's three and like, he can only comprehend so much cognitively. Okay. And so he, he looks out and then he goes, he goes, 
daddy. And he like, he like, like pitter patters across the floor, like runs across the hardwoods. And he, he like runs up and he gives me a big hug. And I was thinking this morning, you know, we're reading through Matthew 1. We're considering the season of Advent. We're, we're resting each week and unpacking all that the incarnation means and what God is communicating to us about himself and the way that we are to now as his people go to, come to him, right? God with us, God, God for us, God fighting for us. These truths lead us to respond to God in the same way that Judah responds to me on Sunday morning. We see his kindness on display through the incarnation. We see the humility of Christ. We see his entrance into the world. We see the commitment of God to rescue those who are far off. As he pours all of his wrath and all of his his perfect and righteous justice, all of his judgment on his son at the cross. affirmation of his commitment and the power of the work of Christ through the resurrection. We see our sin and then we see this this God who is with us and we respond in a way that leads us to to weep and, and mourn our ruined condition and the condition of our world, the way in which we have stewarded it and lived in it and squandered it in so many ways. At the same time, we observe his kindness. We observe his, his commitment and we respond in the same way, in the same way that Judah responds to me. We run to him. We run to him confident that he receives us. Judah never, Judah never like runs to me imagining that like, I'm just going to like, just like forearm to the solar plexus, right? Like that's not the way that it looks. Only that's so oftentimes the way in which we approach God. And may the incarnation totally change and transform the way in which we, in which we understand the character and the nature of our God. God is with us. He fights for us. Therefore, as his people, those longing and desiring, coming into this room this morning, perhaps skeptical, looking for hope, to whom do you cling? You cling to Christ. You cling to Jesus. As the song says, it is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with ragged voice and go bravely into battle knowing he has won the war. It is finished. Lift your head and weep no more. The good news of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. As the band comes, let's spend just a moment praying together. I want you to take a moment. I want you to pray where you are. And I want you, hear me here, like this is for real. I want you to consider the ways in which the character of God and our understanding of the incarnation shape the way in which we understand him and live for him. Relying on the strength of the spirit, celebrating the hope of the gospel. Spend a moment 
where you are, just praying. And then, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then we are going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table in response to the word of the Lord. We're going to come and we're going to take of his generosity in response to the exposition of his, of his scriptures. We're going to go and we're going to give generously because we have been given to generously. Take just a few moments and, and pray. And then I'll close us out. God, you are with your people. You call us into fellowship with you. You make us friends, sons and daughters through the finished work of Jesus. You you call our hearts to look to and trust in you. You give us the words to say. And then you transform our passions and our desires. You create within us a, a longing to worship you and to, and to know you. As we move through this Advent season, we pray that this understanding of your character that our, our comprehension by your grace of your nature would produce within us glad hearts. Hearts desiring to, to worship you, to celebrate you, to focus on you, to live for you. As we come to the table, help us to, to consider again the realities and the call to live the incarnational missional life in light of what you have done for us through the incarnation of Christ. The son sent to save his people from their sins. This is the work that you have committed yourself to. Your people in this room, beneficiaries. May this truth inform our worship. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for being with us and being for us. Thank you for fighting for us, for saving us when we could not and would not save ourselves. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 